Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I got, I've got a new computer up, and it does strange things. So I'm always happy when something works. <laughs> I'm good. I know it. Yeah, I'm doing good, man. How about you? I'm good. Yeah, I uh, actually I crowded in my day. I ran and played racquetball right before this, but a bunch of old guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Well, I'm very excited, Jonathan, about your book. I think uh, thank you. I, I just to picture it uh, doing really well. Thanks. Yeah, because I think it's accessible. It's you know it's short enough. Douglas Campbell had to write the big book, yeah, to make the case. But of course, a lot of people might hesitate to wade into what he's done. Yours is quite lengthwise and explanation wise is quite accessible so yeah that was the idea and i'm glad that you you got that sense too i mean it's hard to know how to do this right because like obviously the 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 main arguments especially with the socratic stuff it's just really really difficult but i i think we did well going back and reading the proofs i was like yeah this is pretty good i, I think we did a good job yeah so, yeah um, <laughs> In fact, I thought there were parts of it that uh, were very much needed. Yeah. Uh, and Douglas, I know he, Campbell, he may have done this other places on N.T. Wright, and you clarify it in the book. I like the clarity. N.T. Wright, not quite as bad as Slavoj Zizek. <laughs> I've done a dissertation dealing with Zizek. Mm-hmm. And and I think you could read Zizek the rest of your life and not understand what he's doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I've read quite a bit of Zizek. Um, because, and that doesn't mean it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But unless you lay the groundwork in Freud and Lacan, yeah. that's what my research is. But I've often thought that about N.T. Wright. I know he's working a project here, but I'm not quite sure what the project is. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure either. He's he's really tricky to pin down, and that's partly why. I mean, he's he's an, obviously a, a very prolific writer and like really influential. Like he's a good kind of gateway, I think, out of certain destructive readings of Paul. But I think the solution he gives, as we talk about in the book, I just don't think it does anything except for replicate justification theory just in a right. it sort of gets cast in a, in a different kind of more corporate bigger way. just yeah yeah, yeah. and it introduce it kind of intensifies some of the problems too especially to do with jews and judaism um yeah, yeah. Oh, he got a blurb on the back yeah <laughs> he does yeah. <laughs> no. though in the blurb he says though some of us may not agree <laughs> exactly which like yeah it's uh. It's kind of a nice, a nice kind of backhanded compliment, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm uh, Paul Axon. I'm here with Jonathan John Depew, and John is the co-author with Douglas Campbell of a new book called uh, Beyond Justification. Uh, who's publishing the book, John? Uh, Whippenstock. So it's under oh. their Cascade and imprint. Within okay. Stocks. Okay. Yeah. I am very excited about the book. I right now am teaching a class 
on Romans, and we're do you're, we're using uh, Douglas Campbell's big book on deliverance. And of course, when we say we're using it, you can't. There's no way you can cover all of that material in a class, at least in an eight-week class like we're doing. It's a very radical. I think it's it's a significant shift in Pauline studies. And so beyond justification is doing all the hard work, I think, that uh, the book Deliverance is doing, but it's doing it in a very accessible level that you could sit down on a weekend and read through it and get the argument. But Jonathan, you ha you're in a unique position, co-author with Douglas Campbell, who I would guess at this point is one of the most renowned Pauline scholars in the world. Is that too, is that too much? Yeah, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> for, for people who are very sympathetic to, to sort of um, apocalyptic approaches to, to Paul, then yes, definitely. Um, very much so. So yeah, there are some other people who may not be too happy with this kind of approach to things, but I mean, Douglas has his, you know, his scholarly kind of hands in a lot of different pots for sure. Um, he's done a, a lot of work even beyond sort of Romans and, and all that. He's done stuff with Pauline biography. He stepped into, you know, various sort of grammatical debates to do with like faith in Christ, faith of Christ. So Pistus Christi debates. He's been kind of an authority on that for a long time. I, I was joking with him I, uh, the other day that, uh, first piece that he published on Pistis Christi or Faith and Faith of Christ, uh, I was one years old when he published well, that. <laughs> <laughs> and it made him feel a little bit old. <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, a, about the time I was publishing my dissertation, mm -hmm. dealing with Slavoj Zizek on mm -hmm. Romans 6, 7, and 8, he was, I think, about that time was working. I don't, when, when did he publish Deliverance? Uh, 2009. So it was in that period. In other words, he's a, he's ahead of me several years in publishing. But I then subsequently, after I finished my dissertation on Zizek and Romans mm -hmm. 6 to 8, I, I realized that what he was doing fit like a, it fit so neatly into my own understanding. Of course, I'm not a, a New Testament scholar, I was approaching it strictly from a theological understanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the reading that I had done, you know, was very much an apocalyptic a kind of, uh, that, that kind of approach. I, I felt like, oh, this is the completion of my own development of my own understanding. But tell us, you know, you're one year, one years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. So that was 1991 was when he published uh, his first little article on on Pistis Christi. Right, I guess it was a bit after he had finished his PhD at University of Toronto. So my own journey, I guess, to to how I got here. <laughs> um, do you want me to go way back? Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want to hear everything. <laughs> sure. Uh, you well, know, were was... you were you nursed or bottle fed or you know, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> not everything, but uh, yeah. So because yeah. something happened right, and I don't I don't mean this in a facetious way. No. Yeah. I'm a I'm a pretty old guy. 
I don't know if you noticed. Probably 30s, early 30s. Yeah. Oh, boy, you nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> and I think it is a long journey that many of us mm -hmm. have been on. And when you find this sort of insight, I mean, it's such a relief. And I've always felt that at least that can be the service that I would do for students I have or people that might be listening to my stuff. Boy, I hope they don't have to go through the sort of struggle that I did, you know, mm -hmm. to come to these insights. A young man like yourself, I think it's such a wonderful, it's a blessing for somebody like you to to come along and have this very early and something that you can build on. So, but anyway, yeah. tell us, tell us Thank how you. it came about. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, that means a lot. Um, so just to kind of give context about a bit about who I am. Um, so I'm originally from central Iowa. So I grew up uh, near Des Moines, Iowa. My home wasn't sort of overly religious or anything. Um, went to church occasionally. My, my grandparents were quite religious. They were Pentecostal. So when we would visit them, they um, we'd go to church with them um, on Sunday mornings. But it wasn't like a um, really important thing, I guess, in our household growing up. So I, I'm the middle of two brothers. So I have a younger and older brother. My dad was an historian, um, or is a historian by trade, um, with philosophical interests. So sort of questioning things, thinking you know, hard about stuff was sort of the norm in our house. Um, education was very important, and, and learning was very important. So grew up in that kind of environment, went to college, uh, majored in philosophy and religion. And I don't know if you noticed in my uh, acknowledgement, acknowledgements in the book, I it's, it's for my brother, Michael, who's my older brother, who uh, went to the same college that uh, I would eventually go to to study philosophy and religion. So I just sort of copied him, <laughs> which I kind of apologize for in the acknowledgments. Uh, but he was someone I looked up to and we have a great relationship and and uh, love to talk theology. He's he's currently a, a PhD student at Boston College in theological ethics um, there. Um, so I went there to, to college, ended up majoring in the same things that my brother did. Through those different majors, I encountered a lot of the sort of major figures of the Christian tradition, um, whether that was in sort of philosophy of religion courses or through theology courses. And what um, was the, what was this Boston College or? So this is a little tiny college in Iowa called Simpson College. So it okay. was a right. uh, little liberal arts uh, college there uh, that both of us went to. And my dad actually went there too for his history degree. So it was sort of a family thing, I guess. And so we, yeah, studied there, started encountering a lot of these major figures in philosophy and also in obviously theology. And of course, historically, these things you know, overlap in ways that they don't really um, today. Uh, figures like Augustine, Aquinas, Gregory of Nyssa. And I began to see, and even sort of going into the Reformation as well, Luther, Calvin, folks like that, and then eventually started getting into some Bart, which has never really stopped, as I'm sure you can sense in the things that I care about theologically. Um, what I started to see was a kind of continuity among a lot of these thinkers about witnessing to a God who is fundamentally revealed in Jesus Christ, um, whose relationship with his creatures is, is not something sort of individualistic, um, but it's cosmic, right? So this was sort of my first introduction actually into Christianity. And I, I would say that I'm 
I'm an adult convert to Christianity. It was kind of through studying and through connecting with uh, certain mentors in college who were, um, one of whom was my academic advisor, Mark Gammon. I kind of got to the point where I was like, I think this stuff's true. It's <laughs> it's compelling. It, it it seems to kind of have a coherence about, about the way that it, it makes sense of reality. It wasn't like a big, I wasn't sort of knocked off my horse or anything like that. It wasn't sort of a big revelatory moment where, aha, now I get it. It was sort of a process of, of getting to know people, of, of reading, of studying, and, and all of that, that I eventually got to the point where I would call myself a Christian. I, I feel kind of, especially knowing a lot of people who went through very sort of traumatic uh, and sometimes abusive relationships with the church and church leaders that I, I feel kind of fortunate that I avoided that. It just wasn't a part of my upbringing or, or anything. I was just sort of confronted with this God who loved you right away. And that was compelling to me. And so I, I wanted to be a part of that. And it, it it's been a part of my life ever since. In college, I took a class on the Apostle Paul, started to learn Greek, in college. And it was actually in that class, that Paul class, that I encountered Doug's work for the first time. And it was actually not Deliverance. It was that little Zondervan Four Views on the Apostle Paul book. I think it was edited by Mike Bird. We read that book as a kind of, you know, little textbook for the class. Because I'd already been reading Bart and kind of getting into the good theology stuff, I was like, oh, there's a guy who's a Pauline scholar, who's a biblical scholar, who has these theological interests and it is reading Paul in this way that I had never really kind of encountered before. This is really cool. <laughs> I like this stuff. And I knew that he was at Duke at the time and I was considering going to further study in uh, theology and Duke was already kind of on my radar at the time. My advisor in undergrad was a Duke grad, so we had good connections there. And so eventually I ended up applying to Duke, got in. Didn't know if I'd ever meet this guy, Doug Campbell, who I, I liked um, his stuff in that little book. And then uh, got in the Duke, was accepted. Around that time, my brother, the same brother in the acknowledgments of the book, recommended Deliverance of God to me and said, you should check this out. This is kind of right up your alley. So I did. And I was like, oh, man, this is this makes sense of so much, so much stuff. If we actually believe in this unconditionally loving God, then we have to do something with certain texts that have been read in Paul in a way that is um, exactly the opposite of that, and that contradicts that. We have to do something with this, and this seemed to, to, do, to do that. So I went to Duke, and actually, Douglas was assigned as my advisor at oh. Duke, um, possibly by the sovereign God who is watching over us all, that I, <laughs> I was assigned Douglas and I got to meet him. We would meet fairly regularly to kind of talk about academic stuff, how I was doing, all of that. And I just started taking classes with him. I took his Romans course, took uh, Galatians with him, took restorative justice, and which was a prison course. So we'd go into various prisons in the Triangle area in North Carolina. Um, ended up taking, I think, seven classes, which is way too much. <laughs> way too much but uh so i just followed him around for three years and we ended up becoming uh really good friends he was actually the one who officiated um uh, my wife and my wedding back in 2019 uh so he's he's a good friend of ours 
Um, so to me, he's more than, you know, the best Pauline scholar. He's, he's my friend. And yeah, yeah I'm just so thankful to, to, to have met him and that he agreed to do this. Cause I was the one who pitched this, this little book to whip and stock and he thankfully agreed. So yeah, it's kind of the, the short version of that story, I guess. Now your wife is also a new Testament scholar. She is. Yes. So she graduated this past year. She is a Matthean expert. So she's expert, all things Matthew. Um, yeah. And she has a great sub stack that I, I know you're aware of, Paul, because we talked yeah, yeah. about that, but she's, she's, uh, now doing quite a bit of public facing kind of writing and she's a phenomenal writer and thinker. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. She's great. She, she's very compelling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> for sure. Oh. Well, in the book, you and Doug, I mean, you mm-hmm. make the book is making some bold claims. Yeah. And in it, you, you're saying that in, and when we say justification theory, mm-hmm. uh, I think that is it too large to say kind of the majority opinion in Protestantism? Yeah, I, I think is, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. But this understanding, in this understanding, it's the wrong God. It's the wrong Jesus. How so? I mean, this is pretty radical stuff yeah. uh, to say, oh, they've got it wrong. Yes. That's a good question. Uh, it is a bold claim. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Christians can get a little bit twitchy about putting things this way, and I get that. Uh, but I, I do think once we think about it for a little bit, it is un, uh, sort of unavoidable part of this now why i think it's because justification theory simply starts off on the wrong foot when it's talking about god and the gospel the god that gets discovered there in its opening phase is self-evidently known in the created order kind of in our state of nature right the truth question is just sort of in our hands (laughs) we're going to discover god we're kind of on a journey to do that right and somebody like Karl Barth kind of warned us about this kind of operation, right? And one of the reasons why was because it opens up the door to theological projection onto the divine at that point, once we're in charge of things in that way. And what gets projected onto God tends to look an awful lot like our own kind of cultural conceptions of what justice, of what politics what contracts are, kind of what it means to relate to to other people is. And I think that's exactly what's going on with justification theory is once you start there, we're just going to be imposing a whole bunch of stuff onto what God is like. Of course, you have certain biblical language that it's using to to talk about God, so a God of justice, a God of holiness, that sort of stuff, right? But what they mean by that is very much informed by a lot of kind of modern Western accounts of politics, justice, all, all that sort of stuff. I don't um, know if, if you experienced it this way, mm-hmm. but I always think that if I could have avoided education and just kind of been self-taught, I could have avoided a lot of problems. But when I got to seminary, my one of the main professors I had, he had written, as many have, a trilogy, you know, three-part work on systematic theology. Where do you begin in systematics? Well, step one, you have to prove God. And so you yeah. have the philosophical proofs for God. The Bartian objection to that 
is that by the time you get this God up and running, it's the wrong God. That's exactly right. And that's, that's exactly what right. you're describing in yep. just justification theory. That's right. That's a great way of putting it, for sure. So what ends up happening then is if you start off in this way that justification theory does, where you are on a journey to find God, you realize that God is, the nature of God is, you know, retributive, contractual, all this sort of stuff, uh, then you get trapped by these conceptions right away because that you start there. It's your foundation for what God is really like, okay? And it makes its witness to God uh, something that has very little to do with information we get from Jesus. In fact, it, it, it occludes that because in your foundation, you need something solid. So once you buy into that stuff, any new information is going to be kind of clobbered by that initial um, those initial commitments, right? So you can't just sort of abandon those commitments. This would be like sort of, I think we talk about in the book that this would be like trying to remove the foundation of a house and expecting it to stand. If you remove some of that foundation and alter it, right? You can't do it. Your whole kind of program is going to fall apart um, if you want it to remain coherent, right? And I think justification theorists do want it to remain coherent. They, they fit Jesus then. Yeah into an already an understanding a preconception of who god is and isn't so the two questions i've asked you are actually not two questions yeah yeah uh that is that oh it's the wrong god and the wrong jesus mm -hmm. because usually the way that i think we begin in theology certainly the way that i was taught theology was you begin with god the father and you know, we all, you know, where do you begin? Well, look at the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so what you're describing is a, a very Bartian idea. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but it's a very, it's an idea that is there in church history in people like Maximus and. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, but what Bart would call a Christocentric. Yes. Yes. It's fundamentally Christocentric. And I'm fine with, you know, being. The Bardian, but he, uh, like you said, I, it is much broader than Bart. I mean, this is, he didn't just make this stuff up, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, it, it's not just his own kind of insight. I think he clarified it in certain ways, especially in, especially for modern theology. Absolutely, but yeah, he he's not just pulling this out of out of the air for sure. And like you said, it, it once you once you begin your account with certain claims about God, you're going to have to fit Jesus into those claims right? Um, there's no room for him to have any sort of fundamental kind of insight into what God is really like, because you already know that stuff. <laughs> he has to be kind of subsumed within the construct that you've already decided on, right? He's not going to really have much impact. And I, it, we see this pretty clearly, I think, in how justification theory develops. Now, we use in the book, we use John Piper as oh, yes. kind of the, the <laughs> representative of justification theory because his little book the future of justification justification is just so clear all of the premises are just right there <laughs> very easy to follow and so we chose that because yeah. it, it's just he's a very clear writer and he lays out everything in a way that's really accessible so we, we go with him in that way yeah before yeah, we right. get into piper uh-huh let's let's clarify sure that in other words, what we're illustrating, or what you're illustrating, even the word justice or justification, mm -hmm. we're really uh, talking about a retributive 
justice. Yes. Apart and by retributive justice, we mean a legal, mm -hmm. a, a justice that is defined by the law. Yeah. And in our understanding of who Christ is in typical Protestantism, that we're going to understand who Christ is on the basis of his relationship to the law. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Yep. And so, so the reconceptualization, in other words, at being pl forging plowshares, I don't think you get to a peaceable notion of an originary peace, an originary notion of the love of God, apart from this starting point. Yes. We get our information about justice, about peace, about love from Jesus Christ. And that's that's it. That's where we get it from, right? Any other conception of justice that, that is leaning on something else is not going to be correct for Christians. It's just not. And I, I, I think it's a it's a mistake it can be a well-intentioned mistake but it's a mistake to to kind of look somewhere else for that for sure we're not going to get to the 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 peace and the love and the justice of of the true god if we don't begin with jesus christ and if we're not constantly attending to what christ is revealing about about god's nature y yes absolutely this is a part of Douglas's book that I really appreciated, and you all have uh, continued it with the illustration with uh, with uh, John Piper. And in fact, I, the interview that I did with him, I, I was so impressed. I mean, it seems like a simple thing that to go through and explain justification theory. It is actually quite a favor that he's done. And when I complimented him on it, he said, "Well, actually, that's not me." That's the Torrances. Oh yeah, that have, that have laid out this understanding, mm -hmm. and I think once you once you see, you know, the the box A, the box B, I think we almost need that, and that's that's what you're going to do now. Explain yeah. to us then how John Piper illustrates this position. Absolutely, um, yeah, and I, I also want to just mention quickly that yes, we are very much indebted to <laughs> Torrance's and especially uh, James Torrance in his his uh, stuff on covenant and contract. Obviously, he's working um, covenant or contract. Um, obviously, he's working within a certain kind of Scottish Pres Presbyterianism. But what Doug saw there in in what Torrance was doing about is God contractual condition of god or is god a god of covenant and love this explains everything this, this is the heart of the matter i think yeah, um yeah. yeah so we're very much indebted to to the torrances in that way so piper's account what we kind of see there and this relates to what we've been talking about in terms of like where you start and also about kind of the role of jesus i don't know if you noticed in piper's account he rarely actually mentions jesus really at all except for in the penal substitutionary kind of moment <laughs> um he's not doing any heavy lifting for our understanding of what god is really like for piper right because he has to be fit into this already constructed account like you're saying and piper really speaks about the love of god because he doesn't really need to <laughs> and this is telling right Piper's God is fundamentally a God of holiness. He he constantly talks about God's holiness, 
God's justice, construed obviously in terms of retribution, who relates to his subjects contractually and conditionally, right? So love, you don't really need to talk about that stuff that much. You don't really need to talk about Christ up front until you get to the sort of mechanism of atonement that kind of um, gives you a way out of this negative situation in box A, as we would say, which is a, a box that sort of implodes on itself as you try to kind of work through the law, whether it's the Torah or the law that's written on your heart or that you sort of observe in the cosmos. Um, but that collapses. And then Jesus shows up and does something for you that you access through faith, through a different kind of contract. That's a bit easier, right? What's key here, and this is, I think, just as key as the covenant and contract stuff. And I don't think Doug, is, Doug and I have really talked about it this way until we started writing this book. And it's leaning on Bart again. Surprise, surprise. Um, the, the first word of Piper's account of God and of the gospel is a no. It's God's no to you. That's the first word you hear. It's a, it's a judgment on you because you've done something wrong. Um, there's a small yes kind of within that to a select group of people who respond to God through faith alone. But the first word that you hear is God's no. Um, we're not speaking about a God of love here. So in JT, as I was saying, Jesus really just shows up um, in the atoning moment right, where he gets executed by his father in our place, which has its own kind of set of problems. My my good friend, Andrew Rilera, will have a book coming out just before ours through Whippenstock called Lamb of, the, Lamb of the Free, which is a total takedown of penal substitution. And it, I'm really excited that that's going to be out there too, because it really complements kind of our work really, really well. So I'm excited about that. There is some love that happens in justification theory and in Piper's account. Clearly, I think, and we don't really get into this in the book, but I, I just kind of wanted to not just repeat the book, but kind of give some slightly different insight into this as well. There is some love that actually happens in justification theory because Christ's kind of merciful decision to shield us from the wrath of his father is a merciful and loving act on the part of Christ, right? I think that's unavoidable. But the God behind that, the God that we have already fundamentally based all of this stuff on, is anything but love it. He's retributive and fundamentally wrathful and deeply violent as well. And so you can actually sense some Trinitarian problems there as well, which I've been writing on a bit in my own time. Um, but yeah, there is some love. Christ is acting mercifully to shield us from the wrath, wrath of his Father. But again, that doesn't really matter that much for the fundamental account of what this gospel is about, which is it's based on this certain conception of, of God as retributive, right? And setting it up in this fashion, that we've made several moves that may not be clear unless you understand the alternative. And that is that in retributive justice, that we're talking about salvation, mm -hmm. but of course it's salvation from God. Yep. It's deliverance from God. And in that, it's an individual deliverance is mm -hmm. tends to be the focus. And it is not a cosmic salvation. Yeah, that's right. And maybe this is my own upbringing. This makes 
justification theory at some level, like Calvinism, it is such a neat system. You've got your five points, you've got the, the logical, legal foundation, you've got a kind of complete explanation, and maybe, I'm just throwing this out here, that New Testament Christianity, as we have it, uh, at least once this is put into place, is actually a much more cosmic and complicated understanding. In other words, the, the thing that God is doing, we do need to talk about it, but there is the sense that justification theory has so simplified everything. Mm. Uh, I got the system. In fact, yeah. I've got the system, and I don't even need to think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. That it uh, is a kind of end of the conversation. Yeah. And I know that's true uh, in Calvinism. It is such a neat package. I think that justification theory is wrong, but it, it is a difficult thing to dispossess people of. And yes. part of... Part of the thing that is going to have to happen is to an alternative explanation. What we're describing is an alternative understanding of God, an alternative understanding of Christ, but also an alternative understanding of our anthropology, what a human being is, and an alternative understanding of what the cosmos is and what it's for. Yeah. And so it's such a huge I mean, maybe this is part of the problem, that justification theory reduces kind of to a neat, you know, logical system uh, that once you got it, you got it. Yeah, and I, I, think it, I think it is simple and logical internally. I agree with that. I also think the alternative is, is fairly simple. It does have sort of, um, like you were saying, because we're talking more cosmically, um, which would include a, an alternative account of anthropology kind of within that Christology, pneumatology, eschatology too. Like all of this stuff is sort of kind of floating around within this alternative uh, system. But I, I do think that the alternative does have a certain simplicity as well um, that I'm trying to explain or we're trying to explain in this book. It's not asking you to just be like, buy into the system don't think anymore about it <laughs> but we're, we're inviting people to actually be drawn into this different way and to think and to to uh to wrestle with all the implications of this right so i think in that sense it's not as simple because i think the alternative the, the uh justification theory approach is basically telling you that this is what's true and you don't have to think really anymore about it. You can just sort of accept it. We're inviting you into a conversation, into a relationship with a God who is dynamic and loving and who is living. He's a living God who we're invited to, to, to ever explore as we deepen our relationship with this God. And that's going to involve a lot of, uh, a lot of thinking and a lot of, uh, you know, investigation and a lot of conversation with with other people who are also involved with this God as we as we sort of are drawn ever deeper into into this relationship. So I think that's right. Um, it may seem like it's it's less simple, but I think it is. I think it is, or it may seem that it's it, it's more complicated, but I think it is simple. <laughs> I like that. I think yeah, the, it the, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It, it is uh, the, the key word, I think, that you all use in the book is it is a participation. It is yeah. participatory. Yeah. Another way of saying participatory, there is a kind of synergism yeah. uh, between us and God. So when you talk about something on the order of theosis or apocatastasis, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that is a picture of our entering into a participata participation in who God is, yep. which is a wonderful you know, yeah. thing that never ends. In one sense, uh, the, to characterize one as simple and one, maybe my characterization is misguided, I think the difference is one is a neat logical package yeah. and the other then is descriptive of the of a life course of a of something that never ends it's a the theological conversation yeah. like the christian life yep. is this is a life this is one in in which we find the love of god we find joy yeah. we find peace and it's an ever growing process yeah, I'm not sure the I like other. That. I don't I like know that. that it takes you anywhere. No, it doesn't. Uh, it's like the difference between like assenting to some propositions and then also the the other the alternative to that is like being a part of a re reality that you're enjoined to to become a, a part of and to live in to live inside of, right? Because like we're not asking people just to to assent to a certain you know account of what christianity is is or what the gospel is or whatever obviously propositions are going to be involved but we're what this alternative is doing is saying we're being invited into a new reality i think that's the difference yeah between yeah. the two kind of approaches that's good yeah. That's good. The thing that this raises is that in justification theory, and actually mm -hmm. this is kind of a pertinent moment as Israel and uh, Hamas yeah. are engaged in this. Absolutely. You know, the, there is a teaching of contempt toward the Jews that I don't, th it's certainly not tied simply to justification theory. But it is kind of uh, underlined or emphasized in yeah. justification theory. Uh, certainly the, with Martin Luther, uh, that the early Protestants tended to be anti-Semitic. And I think that part of this is that just as in justification theory, we need all people to go through, you know, the kind of the crisis with the law, the law's inadequate. So, too, we need the Jews to be a particular thing. Would we want to say that it is inherently anti-Semitic? Uh, justification theory? Yeah. I I would say so, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's, <laughs> there's much of a way around that. In the first instance, it is anti-Jewish. It's premised on the collapse of Judaism, because that's what you find in box A. Like, if Jews want to be you know, transferred into box B, they have to abandon all that makes them Jewish, right? Because that stuff gets crushed. Because it doesn't work. I mean, yeah, that's what we're it doesn't saying. work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and when we say Judaism, I mean that this is the continual discussion among people. It's like in Protestantism, we're depending on a particular definition of what that is. I don't know that you can define it. I don't know that you can say in reality what that is. Mm -hmm. Though in 
justification theory, we need it to be a law-based, legalistic yep. failure. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. So it's, it's, it's always already constructed in a negative because you need that negative to flip out into a positive, which is faith in Christ, box B, right? So it, yeah. it's all premised on the negative construction of what's in box A. And the Jew is the quintessential person in box A. Um, so yeah, I think it is going to be inherently anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. I don't really see any way of correcting that from within justification theory itself. I don't think you can, because then you're messing with box A. And again, like we were talking about foundational stuff, you can't mess with the foundation that you've set up, right? So I think it's, they've shot themselves in the foot again <laughs> with that. Um, so, so we're doing two things with the law. One, yeah. we, we, have, we need the law in box A, and we'll always need the law yeah. as, as a kind of foundation mm -hmm. to get us, not just to get us to box B, but also to understand what, what it means to be saved. Yes. Because although we fulfilled the law, or in other words, the law becomes the defining foundation. I, I don't know if ju people doing justification theory would appreciate that characterization, but I think that's the reality. Yep. That the law, it tells us who Jesus is and what the work of Christ is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the law is there to kind of just mess you up in box A, right? So it's, it's necessary, but it's necessary to make you realize that you can't do it <laughs> and that you need something else. So it gives you the sort of, and it, and it reveals the God who will execute you if you mess it up. So it, it's, it's already constructed in this sort of negative way, but it's necessary. And then it needs to be kind of crushed and done away with because it doesn't work. So you can't bring that into this new situation in box B because all you need is faith alone to be a part of that, right? Um, so it's necessary, but it's also kind of this bad thing that's that's been set up, right? That that to continue to be Jewish and cling to that is a kind of sign of stubbornness. It is, yeah, it is. And in, in justification theory, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, this this is also what what gets us into, as we mentioned, the teaching of contempt. I think, um, and the connection between what justification theory says or claims about Jews, not really taking how Jews talk about themselves, but it's it's making claims about them. If, if we want to move into teaching of contempt stuff, because I'm, I'm happy to talk a bit about that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, um, because I think, that's, I think that's key in this. It's very that, important. Yeah. Yeah. That, that Christianity as we have it. I used to, I worked for a time in, in graduate school. I worked for a Jewish rabbi. Mm-hmm. And my whole job was to just record instances of persecution of the Jews. Uh, it was actually back when people didn't have computers. I was just learning to use a computer. I think it's undeniable the Jews are persecuted people. And a large part of that, the reason they're persecuted people can be direct, directly laid at the feet of Christianity. No question. So if we're anti Jewish, if we're anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. I think we must have gone wrong somewhere, and I think we can illustrate that 
that in justification theory, we need the Jews that to, to cling to the law, the law doesn't work. But what we're saying about Judaism, we're tying the whole ball of wax into this legal definition. Right. Contempt. Yeah, I'd actually love to talk about teaching of contempt because it, it is very important. And I, I, I want to be clear, as you alluded to earlier, that I don't want to reduce the, the problems historically of the marginalization, the eradication of Jewish people. I don't want to reduce that to justification theory. But no. justification theory is complicit in this. And Christianity, historically, is complicit in this. Um, I want to be really clear about that. And this is painful for us, because we're complicit as Christians in a certain way in, in this, as, as we um, uh, confess as Christians. Because there is a very sinister connection to this history that we really, really, really need to come to terms with. And I don't... And it's hard to, <laughs> uh, because a lot of times, especially in our sort of individualistic way of thinking about things, it's like, well, I'm not anti-Semitic, so I'm kind of off the hook. Well, it's like, no, you're you're a part of this tradition and traditions that have been teaching certain things about Jews and Judaism that is is uh, has led to all sorts of horrible things. So, what I want to say is the teaching of contempt, which is the title of a famous book by Jules Isaac. Um, on the sort of Christian roots of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, the teaching basically does this. It frames Jews as fundamentally inferior, as other, and as people who need to be radically marginalized, or in the case of what eventually became the final solution in Nazi Germany, to be eradicated. And the roots of this it's unavoidable, as we were just saying, can be found in Christian teaching. Um, whether that's Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox teaching. Um, and it's rooted in certain construals of biblical texts as well, of Jews as Christ killers, um, as practicing certain sort of barbaric rites, as people involved in, as however outlandish this sounds, as involved in sacrificing children, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they get framed in this certain way. So they're, in addition to that, they get framed as sinister kind of legalists who, through their law, are trying to work their way to salvation, okay? So this is kind of the baseline kind of teaching about the Jews. And so in our chapter... We just call it the teaching of contempt. Um, we document kind of various practical effects of this teaching and how it impacted the lives of Jews in specifically Christian nations, um, at least those Christian nations that would actually allow Jews to to be there. Um, and the, we this goes from sort of you know ghettoizing Jewish people to mob violence against. Jewish people, to the atrocities of the Inquisition, right? And then to the Holocaust itself. It, it, it was a painful chapter to write because it, it you're, you have to constantly be confronted with this. And I think this is a healthy thing for Christians to do. So I'm, I'm really proud that we have this, this chapter in there. Now, when we step back and think about justification theory, it is a powerful justification, no pun intended, 
It is a powerful justification for just such vilification of God's people, the Jews. As we talk about in the book, JT starts off with box A, where the Jews, as I was saying earlier, are sort of the quintessential sinner who tries to do the law to earn salvation, which fails, collapses, all that stuff. And Jews are framed fundamentally legalistically in this. And it's it's all Jews across space and time. It's universalized in that way. Um, the smart ones will see the offer of an easier contract in box B with the arrival of Jesus. And through faith, they sort of jump across into that other box and they enter the church. And like I was saying, their Judaism and their Jewish practices must necessarily be left behind um, because these are sort of legalistic relics of a a kind of initial attempt to reach God, which failed, right? So Judaism gets erased once you move over into box B. So for recalcitrant Jews who remain in box A and continue trying to strive for some sort of salvation through works of law, through the kind of legalism, what's the requisite punishment in justification theory for people who are like, no, I don't want box A, I want to keep on doing this stuff. It's a death sentence. Justification theory is really clear about this. And I don't think there's there's a big jump from that at all to the actual practical othering, punishing, and eliminating Jews in real life. I don't think that's a big jump because they deserve it, after all, on this system. We need to be really clear about this. So we see in JT that it's it's not just a key factor within the teaching of contempt that JT is involved with that. JT is also complicit in what eventually became the Holocaust. And again, I think we need to be clear about this. I'm not reducing the causes of the Holocaust, the causes of the teaching of contempt to justification theory, but you have really good precedent for marginalizing, causing violence against, and ultimately killing Jewish people with this theology. This theology can kill. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Once you are able to other the Jews, this, of course, becomes your characteristic stance toward many peoples. Yeah, you can other anyone else. <laughs> anyone uh, else you disagree with, you can make these same sorts of moves on them. Or that you find less than you or, or whatever, right? Whether it's it's people of color, whether it's poor people, you know, you can run the same sort of thing against against anyone. Yeah. So that you actually create a violent attitude, I'm, yes. I'm afraid. Yes. And uh, it is there in our missions, our, evan our, our evangelistic methods, because the way that you evangelize people in justification theory is in some way you want to, for their system, you know, if, if they're not Jews, you know, I was in Japan for 20 years as a missionary. Mm. You can do to the Japanese what we might do to the Jews. Yes. Oh, you're stubbornly clinging to being Japanese, which actually Japanese-ness can function as sure. a kind of total identity, yeah. as, as any kind of, you know, that's true of most peoples, that they're tribal, national, racial, ethnic mm -hmm. identity, or some part of that can serve mm -hmm. as a kind of identity complete in itself. Mm -hmm. 
And so the the attitude is then not just one that we carry out toward Jews, but that then becomes our characteristic attitude toward all people in yes. box A. Yes, that's right. And with it, then, we've bought into a kind of colonial yes. attitude. We've bought into a legal system that is based upon justification theory. We've bought into a kind of paternalism towards other people. So this problem is tied up, I think, with many of the problems in justification theory. Yes. I'm glad you picked up on that kind of other strand, that it's not just... It is about Judaism. It is about being anti-Jewish within justification theory, but that same logic extends to everyone else too. <laughs> it, 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 the othering operation that happens, and as you were saying, it does a ton of damage when it comes to missions and to relating to to other people. Um, and it is colonizing for sure, because what it, what it does is you're showing up and telling them the truth <laughs> and telling them what's wrong with them. And you're not postured to to listen, right? There's no back and forth. There's no conversation inherent in that, right? You're set up to tell them everything they need. You're not set up to, to learn, um, right. which I think is what healthy missions should do. We should be learning probably more from other people than we're telling them that they need to do, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's important. Absolutely. And Doug has done, done amazing work on this and Pauline Dogmatics and lots of other people I've done awesome work on on sort of a a non-colonial kind of account of missions. And I I I think that stuff is awesome. And I, I hope that this book can kind of lay some fresh groundwork for people thinking through, okay, if justification theory is off the table and we have this kinder, gentler account of God who comes to us and comes alongside us as a loving brother and friend, as Karl Barth would say. What does that mean for how we incarnate into other situations? We can't just go in and dominate those situations. We show up alongside people to learn from them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And maybe that carries us into then E.P. Sanders mm -hmm. and, and James Dunn. And then the, the, th the way in which they have challenged this typical understanding of Judaism. Yes. So... The typical understanding being a kind of legalistic account of Judaism, which was just sort of taken for granted before really the 70s, or actually late 60s. Sanders' book, which was published in 1977, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, was really a game changer uh, because what he did is he went back to uh, second, second double Jewish sources and was like, okay, what are Jews at that time saying about themselves and how they relate to God and how they relate to the Torah? And it turns out it wasn't legalistically. They thought that they were in a covenant with God, uh, that God had established, and God had given them the Torah to learn from and to live their lives ethically in the light of. Right. So it's not a law relationship. It's not a kind of legal relationship. It's what Sanders dubbed covenantal gnomism. So covenant meaning God establishes this relationship with you. The gnomism part referring to, to the Torah or teachings. It's not really best translated as as law. It's more something like teaching or instruction. Um, the gnomism part is how God's people are expected to respond to that covenant. So it's kind of like how a lot of Christians think about the Bible. 
it's a gift from God that we're enjoying to learn from and teach one another and to act and to live our lives ethically in the light of, right? It's not a punitive situation that's been set up there. Um, so Sanders saw that this is how Second Temple Jews were understanding themselves and their identity and their relationship to this loving God, this covenantal God, right? So this was kind of Sanders' breakthrough. Although I will say there were people prior to Sanders who were actually onto this stuff that don't get a lot of praise, one of whom is uh, Richard Longnecker, who was Doug's uh, PhD advisor at University of Toronto, who wrote uh, this great book, Paul Apostle of Liberty, which was already kind of onto the stuff. We need to be thinking about Jews in a covenantal as against a kind of legalistic way. Okay. This was pre-Sanders. But Sanders was the one who sort of popularized this stuff and actually got it on the map academically as well. So this was going on in mid to late 70s, right? And then you have scholars like Jimmy Dunn and T. Wright who are really sympathetic with what Sanders has found about Second Temple Judaism, what Jews actually thought about themselves. And since Sanders didn't really apply much of that to Paul's texts themselves, um, it's it's kind of funny because the Sanders' book is called Paul and Palestinian Judaism, and he hardly writes about Paul in that book. Um, so they're like, how do we kind of use this and interpret certain difficult parts of, of Paul's data, especially to do with works of law? So that's in the Greek, ergonomu, works of law. So what someone like Dunn does early on and that Sanders, or that uh, N.T. Wright kind of picks up on is that he reframes works of law as ethnic boundary markers. So what Paul really means by works of law is he's really targeting the problem of ethnic boundary markers. So it's a kind of sociological reading of this stuff. That the problem that Paul sees with works of law is that Jewish people are too tied to their own identity and their own their own kind of practices and they're not really allowing this to kind of be shared with with other people, namely Gentiles, right? So that's kind of a reinterpretation of what works of law is doing in the text, right? I think this is helpful to a certain extent. I, I really do think it is, because this is part of the difficulty in the ancient world where ethnic boundary markers are so crucial, and they do get in the way of relating to other people. That's absolutely true. Part of the problem, though, with their solution, there, I think there are two problems that we kind of catalog. One is... Ergonomu works of law just doesn't mean ethnic boundary markers. <laughs> That's not what it means. Like it, it, literally, when you translate ergonomu, it just means works of law. It's not indicating something else. And in Paul's text, in context, when he uses works of law, he is using it legalistically. Okay, Romans two and in Galatians, he is using it legalistically. So you can try and reframe it and say, Paul doesn't really mean this. He really is thinking about this other thing, but that's not a good exegetical basis to make this case on, right? So it doesn't really get at that very well. Second issue is that it doesn't have a coherent, this rereading of works of law doesn't devolve into a coherent account of Paul's uh, understanding of salvation. Because the problem that Paul identifies um, with works of law if that's a problem, is it needs to somehow unfold into something to do with 
justification and faith, right? Or faith language, right? So let's say, let's grant for a second that works of law really means ethnic boundary markers. What's the solution to, you know, ethnic boundary markers being a problem or hoarding practices being a problem? Well, the solution is sharing them with other people, right? How does that actually link up with something to do with faith at all as a solution? So argumentatively, this doesn't really seem to make sense of what Paul does. Because Paul clearly thinks that faith in relation to Christ in some way is the solution, right? But if the problem is just ethnic boundary markers, then how does it actually work within a Pauline system? I don't think it does. So I think we have an issue with exegesis, and I think we have an issue with the sort of larger argument of Paul's account of salvation as well. And I think the reason why ultimately this doesn't work is that the problem is that we need to solve as readers of Paul is the whole construct of justification theory <laughs> and it's kind of forward-moving gospel that kind of self-evidently collapses on Jews. This is the problem. It's not just trying to nip and tuck certain phrases or words. The problem is much more radical and deep and hard. So I don't think people like Don or Wright have the theological sensitivity to really get this. I mean, I'm not trying to be insulting at all. I just don't think that that's part of how they, they operate. I don't think they have the sensitivity, the sensitivity theologically to see that if we don't start our analysis with how God has chosen to reveal himself in the gospel, we're not actually going to see the problems with this larger construct that actually needs to be removed. We can't just do these artificial solutions by reinterpreting certain words, rereading certain phrases. That's not going to be enough. We need something radical. And I think our approach ends up giving you that and ends up giving you the tools to, to do that. So, yeah. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.